God bless and welcome to this week's episode of Family Discussion. We are so glad that you've joined us today. Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Jesus teaches us in the Gospel of John that the world will know that we are his followers by the way that we love one another. And yet it seems like the love of Jesus is less and less evident in the way that we speak to and about one another, especially when we disagree. So, in the hopes of recapturing the brother-sister love that Jesus has won for us, we are calling a family meeting. For the next half hour, let's cut through the noise and look at the issues without slander and malice. It's time for a family discussion. Well, God bless and welcome to another episode of Family Discussion. My name is Marcus Ortega, and as always, I am joined by the astounding Lisa Spencer. Lisa, how are you today? I'm I'm doing well. Doing well. You had a recent trip down south to Kentucky. Well, you're in the south already. Down south for me because I'm in New York. Yeah, but down Virginia south, south to Kentucky. You went to Kentucky. You hung out. How was it? You have a good time? First of all, thank you for reminding me that I actually do live in the South, <laughs> uh, a place I would never, I never thought I would uh, find myself living in, but here I am. You Although, you know, Roanoke has really surprised me. It's cool. There's a lot of diversity. Um, you know, once you get outside of Roanoke, it's a different story. But, and then, you know, there are times when I'm reminded that I am in the Southwest part of Virginia. <laughs> but <laughs> but other than that, you know, Roanoke's a really it's it's a cool little city. Awesome. Um, so yeah, we went to uh, we were in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. We uh, went to the Creation Museum. Okay, all right, and the Ark. And hey. actually, we were there for a conference on the Bible and sexuality. Okay. And it was held at the Ark location. So not in oh, the Ark, okay. but it's, you know, it's it's the kind of the main building. They didn't do it first. in the actual Ark? I feel like that's a real missed opportunity. You know, but it's, it was right there. So all, all we right, had to do right. was just walk in. And they actually, we got free passes hey, just cool. by registering for the um, registering for the conference. So, you know, it was, I, 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 as we were discussing um, prior to our recording, mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. Y- you know, I, I definitely had my reservations about <laughs> uh, this particular um, thing uh, because I just felt like maybe it's, you know, too, a little too subcultural, cheesy, producty. But right, I right. actually think they did a good job um, in terms of it. And they know there, there was some artistic... Um, you know, liberty taken because the Bible only tells us so much. And so yeah, you have, yeah. you know, you can look back in history and, um, you know, figure out like, what was the culture? Then we know what the Bible says. And so there had to have been some, you know, some liberties taken, but it, it's built to scale. Um, and it's, you know, and, and, and through it, and they even have a partnership with the Museum of the Bible. And oh, cool. Uh, so on the third level, because three levels, on the third level, um, a part of the third level was uh, where the Museum of the Bible, and they had some really interesting things about different regions. And here's the one thing that 
um, surprised me a little because Answers in Genesis is not a ministry I've really paid attention to. Um, Even when I was, you know, more engaged with theological uh, discussion, especially online. Um, And so here's, here's one thing that kind of pleasantly surprised me, and that feeds into our topic for today. In that, you know, because Answers in Genesis is, you know, the, the the premise of it is that the first 11 chapters of Genesis matters. And so, um, you know, you have to deal with anthropology and the fact that we were created, that God created man. There was one race, right? God created man in his image, male and female. And But what we've done with that is, you know, create this false construct of race. Um, so that we could categorize people and subjugate people. Um, and that's and that's exactly what has happened with racism. And so you really, between the ark um, and the creation museum, you really get a good dose of, okay, this was an impact of the fall. Mm. And they make very clear that, you know, race, that any any type of racial partiality, racial injustice is, you know, that's all part of that corruption. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so you see that displayed, you know, the the fact that man is created in the image of God, the Imago Dei comes out really strong, I think, in both places. And so, in, and, and by both places, I mean the Creation Museum and the Ark. And he's even written a book called One Blood, One Race, The Biblical Answer to Racism. Okay. And it really is a very, in my opinion, I, I actually am very surprised, very pleased with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really surprised that yeah. it's, you know, it's not trying to brush stuff under the rug. It's not, oh, we're just one in Christ and we can just ignore not only the history of transgressions, but also how they may even manifest today. Yeah. And um and so that's one thing that really I you know I, I was I, I was a little taken aback by but but in a good way. Yeah. No, that's great. I mean, you know, one of the things that you mentioned there that that I do, I do think it, it really helps us move into our discussion today. Race is a construct um, that is, uh, it's not a biblical framework. It is a man-made construct that was designed to subjugate people, to oppress people. Um, and over the generations, um, around the world, I mean, one of the things that's interesting, right? Ken Hammond's Australian. Um, mm-hmm. he's approaching this from an Australian perspective mm-hmm. and, and not particularly an American one, though what he's observing applies to the United States as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we have become as human beings very, very good at racializing one another. And in the United States, that's taken on some horrific, horrific, um, really a, a history that has framed and shaped the United States until today. Um, you know, a lot of people who are still wrestling through what they just experienced this past summer in 2020, um, with everything that happened after George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, all that, um, what they're seeing is the echoes, if you will, of what has happened in our past and in our history as a country. Mm-hmm. And one of the calls, and this brings us to our topic, one of the calls um, that many have offered is that the church specifically has an opportunity to lead by lamenting together. 
um, that we have in Scripture, particularly in the Psalms, especially a book like Lamentations, um, we have a framework to help us weep with those who weep. Um, that lament is a, a, an important way forward, especially in the church. It's, it's hard to teach this to a world that doesn't have maybe the tools of lament from Scripture, uh, but we can demonstrate and lead through lament Here's how we can at least begin approaching the racial healing um, that is very clearly still needed today. Um, and so that's where we're talking about. We're talking about lament. We're talking about the role that lament plays. Um, you know, I, I'm in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Uh, I'm an I'm a ordained pastor there. And um, not long after uh, the killing of George Floyd, our denomination put out a, a statement encouraging all pastors to speak to justice and to um, to gather together. We had a national day of lament, fasting and lament around um, what had happened. And I think a lot of people are starting to wrestle with what does lament mean? How do we lament well? What does it mean to lament something like racism in the United States? Um Lisa, have you seen a lot of this uh, recently, this this drive towards lament? Is that a new thing, or is that something that's just kind of like, where, what are you seeing in your circles? You know, what I'm seeing, it's a mixed bag. Um, on one hand, there there is a lack of lament, and it's particularly by a group that really just say, you know, the past is the past and we need to get over it mm. um, without really dealing honestly with just how tragic this false construct of race that created these systems mm -hmm. of, you know, of inequality, of uh, of racial hierarchy, I should say, the created systems based on racial hierarchy, attitudes of racial hierarchy. Because now I think we have less systems. I know maybe you and I may disagree with that. I don't sure. really see a system of racial mm -hmm. hierarchy like we did with slavery and Jim Crow and even places in the North where you had redlining. I mean, these are like government-backed policies, yeah, yeah. you know, of redlining, not just, you know, private banks and citizens making decisions. So we've had to deal with centuries of cultural, you know, cultural attitudes, but also, um, you know, legalized systems of, of racial hierarchy. So I think, you know, we, we have less of systems, but there are still some lingering vestiges some lingering attitudes about how do, how do we see one another? You know, do you look at, you know, so for instance, a, a teacher, you know, if a teacher is, is, you know, has a, has a room full of students, is that teacher likely to see the white students as more likely to achieve as more intellectually capable than the black students or, yeah. you know, even my other minority students, you know, because that, that's racism, too. I think sometimes, and I know next week we're going to get into more definitions of racism, but I think sometimes, and especially the people who are tend to be resistant to lament, 
think, well, you know, yeah, okay, the KKK still exists, but it's not like they're terrorizing people like they were, you know, like they were decades ago. And so there's this concept that, well, if we don't have, if it's not, you know, codified in our legal system and you don't have this reign of terror, you know, by the guys in the white hood, then that's not racism. But at the heart of racism, it's, you know, it's a mindset, it's an attitude that categorizes people and creates a hierarchy and -hmm. discriminates against them. Um, And so I think what happens is there is an either an unwillingness, I want to say even ignorance, although at this point in 2020 with Google, we really, (laughs) we really have no excuse for really not knowing the tragedy of racism in this country and why we had even churches supporting things like slavery and Jim Crow and believing in the purity of the races and Mm -hmm. supporting it with the Bible. Yeah. You know, when you look at that and you look at the design, again, it's going back to what, you know, I was reminded of when I went to the Creation Museum, the fact that there is one race Mm -hmm. and God created, you know, he put people in different regions and there are different ethnicities and we should see all of it in their, all of their various cultural manifestations and all of the skin, the, um, you know, the varying shades of skin and hair texture and facial features, we should see that as a beautiful thing. Yeah. You know, Amen. it's, it's a, it's a, a testament to the, the wisdom and creativity mm-hmm. of our Lord. But the fact that people do have not seen that and we have just this, this, this history. Yeah. That should cause us to lament and also ask the question, okay, how is that still being perpetuated today? Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, you know, one of the things that's maybe going to be helpful for people is is if I could offer a definition of lament, um, and this is, this is my own definition, I'm sure mm-hmm. there are many, many better definitions out there. Lament is the, um, it is the cry in response to the pain that is caused by sin. Hmm. It's when we cry out because sin has caused a pain and we either feel that pain ourselves or we see others dealing with that pain. At, at root, the reason why we've taken this beautiful tapestry of humanity and tried to dice it up and make a racialized hierarchy is sin, right? I mean, it all boils back down to sin. What we lament is the pain that that sin causes. Sin always has a cost. Somebody gets hurt. Either you hurt yourself or you hurt others. At every point you're offending God, but there is a there are often victims of sin. Mm-hmm. And what lament is is a is a heart cry that we see throughout the scriptures. Um, it is a recognition that that is wrong and it should not be that way. Mm-hmm. That it is a perversion, um, and there there are various kinds of lament. Um, you know, there's there's the lament that is. You know, I think of a psalm like Psalm 35. It's a lament that really is asking the Lord to respond on your behalf. Contend, Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take up shield and armor. Arise and come to my aid. That's 35 one and two. 
Um, so it's a lament that recognizes there's people attacking you and you're asking the Lord to, to respond on your behalf. Um, you know, there's uh, just a couple Psalms later. 37, do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong for like the grass, they will soon wither the green plants. They will soon die away. So it's this, um, it's a, it's a Psalm really where they're dedicating, he's dedicating himself to the Lord in the face of an entire culture that is running as far away from Christ as possible, or at least in David's day, as far as away from the the God of Israel as possible. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think what we want to do is we want to encourage people to say, okay, if there is a sin-caused pain, then we as a church and we as Christians are supposed to have an emotional response to that. And lament is kind of the, the biblical um, tool that we use to be able to have that emotional response correctly mm-hmm. without veering into sin ourselves. <laughs> Right, <laughs> because right. that's going to often be what we do next. Yeah. And I think, you know, at the heart of that is Philippians 2, 3, and 4, you know, about doing nothing out of selfish ambition, but looking out for the interests of others and considering the interests of others, more loosely paraphrasing, but, you know, considering the interests of others as more uh, important than ourselves. Right. Yeah. And, and this, you know, and this kind of coincides too with, you know, we, you know, we, we keep hearing about these stories of sexual abuse that comes yeah. out of the church. I just heard a, you know, flabbergasting story yesterday about the, the gospel singer, you know, Christian artist, Chris, Chris Rice. Yeah. And he had, um, you know, um, been called to, to worship a few times, you know, lead worship, um, you lead the music and worship a few times at, a uh, PCA church in Kentucky. And I, I really applaud the way that they handled the allegations because one of the things that they did was they identified with the victims. Mm. They didn't just stay. And, and this to me has been the tragedy of the, you know, as we have, as we keep hearing about these stories coming out in the church on sexual abuse, that, 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 that there are cases where there's more concern for protection for the abuser than there is for the actual victims. And that really goes to lament. And it's the same thing with racism. It's like, how do you, is putting yourself in that other person's shoes. And I would go so far to say, right, so police shootings, I know later on in the season, we're going to get into that. And so when we hear, uh, when we hear these stories, right, I'm a very analytical person, so I'm looking at all the dynamics. And it may be true there are other dynamics of a situation of the of, of that uh, police encounter that we need to consider. We can't just automatically jump to, oh, this is racist. But I tell you what, when you see a, a victim of police brutality and that victim is black, it hearkens to this lengthy historical record. There's a reason Mm-hmm. People are pained. Now, yeah. that's where I have to step back and say, okay, we understand this is a, you know, white cop with a black victim. Is it because, did, you know, is it because of race? You know, and that's where I think, and not just with police shootings, but like you said, we live in a, in a very racialized culture. 
right? A lot of that has to do with how we're looking at the issue of white supremacy and, you know, this idea that white supremacy is so embedded into our culture. And with that comes sort of a, you know, a power structure that it kind of reduces everything mm -hmm. to a product of racism. And that's where I think we need to be careful because here's, you asked me, what am I seeing? So here's the other part of what I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. The other part of what I'm seeing is if, you know, if your mindset is that everything is a product of this, you know, this product of white supremacy and that power structure, then any, any undesirable move or outcome against a person of color is automatically a product of racism. So because of that, now I'm hurt. Mm -hmm. Right. And and we don't want, look, I'm not trying to undermine or dismiss anyone's genuine feelings about what they experience. When people experience hurt, there's a reason for that. The thing that I'm asking is, okay, so why are you hurt? Is it because, again, you know, we have this long historical record of transgressions. Mm -hmm. And so is it because now we've, we've, we've taken the weight of all of that history on the situation when maybe there's something else that might be going on and we need to learn and we need to navigate through that. And so I am seeing, and, and especially because of where the conversation is with respect to white supremacy, I am seeing some of the... I am hurt because this has to be racism and, oh, you have to see it as racism too. Therefore, you have to hurt with me. And that's where I think we need to be careful. Again, I don't want to take away anyone's hurt. But the question is, okay, why are you hurt? Is it because you're bringing all of this into, you know, all of the history, all of the perception that this must be racism when in fact it may not be? And therefore, you have to lament because I am now experiencing this racial injustice where it it may not be. And so and that's where I think that's where I think we need to because I am seeing that as well. Um, so you have the you know, you have the callous people on one side that says, mm -hmm. oh, you know, mm -hmm. just get over it. It was the past. And oh, by the way, you know, slaves were treated good because they got fed. Maybe oh, yeah. that's another uh, episode for another day. I'm not mm -hmm. even going to get on that. Or, you know, and on the flip side, on the opposite end of that of that stick is, you know, this almost like a hyper sensitivity to everything racialized. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I think that's fair. But I think one of the things that Lament does is it pauses us before we start analyzing, mm -hmm. you know, so, so let me give you a, a, an example. So I've got two little girls and you know, you've had kids as well. So you've had this experience. Your, your little one runs up to you crying, right? And you have no idea what happened. You don't know if, some, if, if somebody hurt them, if they hurt themselves, if they actually should be in trouble because they brought this on themselves by doing something you'd already told them, not, like you don't have any of the details, right? But they come up running to you, what do you do? 
You hold them and you calm them down. You tell them you love them. And then you figure out what happened. You first identify with the emotion. You first lament with them. And then you investigate. And what I see happen more often than not, particularly with those who are um, suspicious of all things social justice, who have, you know, this um, anti-wokeness crowd that has really started, like, hammering hard and saying, if your pastor's not anti-woke too, you should, like, bring him up on charges. Like, these, this really insane um, level of anger against all things, quote-unquote, woke. Mm-hmm. Um, which, by the way, aside, I don't know anybody who calls themselves woke. Like, I don't call myself well, woke. I, I, like, fairness, I don't know those folks. Okay, in fairness, Eric Mason did write the woke <laughs> He did. Okay, fair enough. Where All he right. promoted. One and dude. I, have, I know I have one seen, dude. Okay, I have seen, I, I have seen Christians of color, you know, say, you know, kind of say, use the, the term woke. In a in, in a positive sense, so. All right. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that world. The world I know is a bunch of people who are trying to do something about racism are getting called woke and getting called Marxists and getting called like proprietors of CRT. Um, you know, there's one famous author who said, yeah, I'm going to read my first book on CRT because I want to know what I'm being accused of. Um, right. <laughs> you know, so is, is this kind of um, is this kind of, of anger towards it? But there's no lament. There's no recognition of the pain. Let's get to the analysis. Let's have that conversation. But before we get to all the analysis, can we lament for a moment that the police kicked in Breonna Taylor's door, her, her boyfriend's door, yeah. and shot her eight times? Can we, can we start with, this was wrong, and our hearts are broken, that this EMT died for no reason? Um, I think that we we move very quickly to analysis and we don't give ourselves time to be human. Mm-hmm. These are people who are dying. Mm-hmm. You know, this is part of the one race. This is our this is our human family. Right. And in some of these cases, you know, this is our Christian family. I remember Botham Jean was killed by the by someone who who you know thought he was in her apartment, but he was in his own. Yeah. He he was one of our family who was murdered this way. Mm-hmm. And and I think we so quickly get to trying to explain away or excuse or find the real reasons behind that we don't lament first. Mm-hmm. And it's much easier for me to hear analysis from somebody who has broken in lament over the wrong that's happened and then analyzed, mm-hmm. then someone says, oh, yeah, well, y'all, it's social justice warriors just trying to... I don't want to hear that because there's people who are suffering. And as Christians, we're first called to love and to lament before we analyze. I'm right. not saying we never get there. I'm just saying let, there's an order of operations here. Well, yeah, and so that brings up another point, you know, that I'm saying. I think you're right. I think there is a place where, you know, when these situations happen, we need to lament first and not just be so quick to get to the analysis. But then also what I'm saying is, well, you need we need to stay in the lament stage. So once you start getting to so even with, you know, even with people uh, and it's not just police shootings, but primarily with police shootings. Right. You know, the tragedy happens, you're like, oh, my God, that was so wrong. And, you know, and we have this pause. But then when you act, and here's what I've seen in fairness, 
is that when you act, when you move past that and actually try to get to the analysis, then it's you're, you know, you're being cold and callous. Like, well, wait a minute, we've lamented. So how, so how long do we stay in this mode before we actually get to trying to figure out what happened? Um, and that's where I get, you know, it goes back to what I said a few minutes ago that if we're, you know, perpetually looking at this, you know, through this, this lens of, of white supremacy is, um, you know, it, it is really, it is so ingrained in our society that we can't do anything other than lament, you know, and anytime anybody tries to offer other, uh, or, or even suggest that there may be other dynamics in play, then it's, well, you're not on the side of people of color. You're not on the side of trying to resolve racism. And that's not because I've even experienced that, you know, where, yeah, I mean, obviously I'm going to have some lament, but then it's like, okay, let's move to like you, you do with your kids. Okay, let's try to figure out what happened. And then you start, you know, learning about different dynamics but then for those who want to stay in that lament mode, it comes across as, as not being on the, on the side of, of justice, you know? Yeah, I, I hear that. I think my pushback would be that the Christian should always be in a place of lament, even while working for justice. I don't, I don't think that we have to leave that place of lament. I remember, you know, Paul saying that he is sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Um, and that that just kind of becomes the, the mode out of which he does his ministry is that sorrow is a part of his life. You know, that Jesus was acquainted, he was acquainted with many sorrows, right? Mm -hmm. Um, there is a natural lament that is, uh, kind of part of the DNA of the Christian, that should inform everything we do. Um, and, and I, I want to believe, I want to believe that people start and lament and then move to analysis. It's just not been what I see. Right. Um, and so that's, I think if we started in lament, we would be more successful in the conversations about these things. You know, I'm reading a book um, that I recommend, you know, I, I had never heard of this author, um, the Westminster Theological Seminary Bookstore, um, advertised the heck out of this book when it came out. And, um, you know, when it's, when it's put out by Westminster, when Crawford Loritz is in the back with the little blurb and Thabidion Abuile has written the foreword, I'm probably going to pick it up and read it. There you go. Um, that's just, you want to know where I'm coming from? That's a pretty good trifecta for me. Um, and so, you know, this book is um, is called Weep With Me, How Lament Opens a Door for Racial Reconciliation. Um, he talks about lament as basically a bridge between people of different races, um, you know, uh, ethnicities. It, this is where, and we'll, we'll talk about this in a future episode, while there is one race and race is a construct that's been placed on us, we live in such a racialized society, we kind of have to deal in those categories because that's the society we live in. Um, but, you know, it, it creates, lament creates a bridge between black and white, between, you know, even among people of color, between black, brown and black, there's a bridge that's created through lament. Um, 
and it's it's I like the way he puts it in the subtitle. It opens a door. It doesn't accomplish, but at least gets us going down the right road. And you know what I think is is very important about this book is it provides language for us. Um, we're going to talk about some of the language in later episodes that can be very very. Um, really kind of get your blood pump in, but can, can sound very offensive on the surface. Um, what this book does is it attempts to create a language for these conversations through biblical category of lament so that we can really see some progress happen in racial reconciliation. And it's got its eyes directed towards the church. I'm a pastor. My eyes are directed towards the church first, um, you know, and, and whatever we can be for the common good comes second. Um, but I think if we can create space for lament, if we can, what, what this does is it allows people who've been hurt to speak and it, it causes those of us who haven't experienced it to listen. Just creating that space where lament, it, it, it's sacred. Lament is a sacred, holy thing and it creates the space where we can at least say, now we've had this, this moment together. Now I do, now I see you as sister. I see you as brother. How do we move forward? Yeah, and you know I just experienced that a um, little bit um, when I was at this um, when I was at this conference. One of the speakers did a little side gig on Jonathan Edwards, and actually, mm. my husband just um, learned recently that Jonathan Edwards was you know he's a slaveholder, mm-hmm. and it was funny because we were we were the only black people there. And as soon as the um, as soon as the talk was over, and we went into Q and A, his hand was the first to go up to ask about slavery. I'm like, oh, we're doing this here. <laughs> we're the only black people. Oh man! <laughs> but the speaker, but but what he did, the way it was in the delivery, that it was you you could tell it was. Oh my God! Yeah, I understand. This was a horrible thing, and there's it's such a contradiction. Yes. Right, and the way that the way that the speaker handled that, um, to me, I think if if he had said the same thing, well, you know, Jonathan Edwards was just a man of his times and was dismissive. Mm-hmm. I don't think I would have likely heard anything past that. Nope. But the fact that you know you could hear and see the heaviness of you know of that contradiction of that sin that really i think it went a long way and yeah. um you know in offering the the explanation of of the contradiction and so it does that, make a difference it does and and what that does is it then by recognizing it by owning it it then allows people to approach jonathan edwards who might otherwise be turned off because of his slaveholding to recognize it as the evil that it was allows us to then hopefully take some of the good that's there as well. Now, personally, I, I, I don't read Edwards. I don't really know Edwards. He, he's not, he's just not one of the guys I go to. Um, but there there are those who have these, you know, in, in some of the reform circles we run in, Kuiper is one of those same guys who yes. you know, people people love Kuiper and then you bring up South Africa and and it's like, oh, what do we do with this? It came yeah, up Kuiper in the Presbytery meeting. You know? that were like, yeah, it, not no, okay. Not and, okay. Um, you know, uh, I'll give you an example from up here in New York. Central Park. Um, the history of Central Park, a lot of people don't know, 
where where they have Central Park now, there was this little area called Seneca Village. Seneca Village was a majority black village uh, in the early 19th century, right? So slavery had only been outlawed in New York for about 10, 15, 20 years before Seneca Village starts to build up. And by the time Senate, by the time we get to about 1855 or so, half of the African Americans who were living in Seneca Village owned their own home. The kids were in school. People were employed. It was about two-thirds African-American, one-third Irish immigrant, and half the African-Americans there are starting to do what you have to do in the United States to be able to really thrive, and that's start to build equity, home ownership, all those things, right? That's that's kind of the, um, people talk about what's the silver bullet economically, often home ownership is that. What New York did was through eminent domain, they went in and took all of that land quote unquote, they compensated the people who were there. And you can read through the lines on that one, right? Woefully undergave what the land was truly worth. And that's where they put Central Park. Hmm. So my daughter is in, uh, she's in grade school. And uh, the assignment is, uh, we're going to give you a landmark. And you have to write a a short report on it. A grade Hmm. school report, but a report. And she was given Central Park. And so she's telling me she's almost done, and she's like, ah, it's kind of boring. Like, other people got the Finger Lakes, they got this, this, this. And I'm like, look up what Central Park used to be before it was Central Park. Yeah. And when we talked about it, I could see the weight and the emotion in her face. And I said, listen, that doesn't mean we can't enjoy Central Park. But we have to know that Central Park was built on broken dreams and on racism. Yeah. And then... With that acknowledgement and understanding what went on there, that doesn't mean we can't go enjoy a day in Central Park. Right. You just have to recognize how we got here and and own it because that's our history as Americans. I have to own that myself. I don't get to I don't get to have my hot dog on the Fourth of July and not own Seneca Village. I got to have both. Right. Exactly. And that's really what it comes down to. It's like we have to first acknowledge. Acknowledge and identify, you know, and even though you may not have experienced what, you know, anything close to it, it's like, what, what must it have been like? You know, we Mm. had, there's actually a a very similar um, place here um, in, in the Gainsborough area of, um, of, um, of Roanoke, the same thing happened. Of course, this was happening, uh, you know, all across the United States. Yeah. And it was an area, it was a, you know, a black area that was, um, where businesses were thriving. There was 100% home ownership. Wow. And the, you know, and, and they wanted to build a civic center and the highway and came in and, and did the same thing. And now it's one of the poorest regions in the city. And so if you don't, you know, look at that, you know, you can look at that and think, oh, my gosh, I don't want to be in that area because, you know, that's where the poor people are without recognizing, okay, what was that area once? How did it even get that way? Yeah, we can get very arrogant and say, why can't they just fix their, you know, fix themselves and pick themselves up by their bootstraps and just figure Like, listen, I'm not taking personal responsibility away from folks, but let's understand why things happen the way they are. And the echoes of generations before us who 
acted in in objectively racist ways and how that has affected things today. That's where lament can come in. And I think if we get too quick to here's how we fix it, we've missed the humanity of it. Or here's how we explain it away, we miss the humanity of it. Sit in the humanity of it, lament helps us do that, then we can continue the conversation. But I, in my opinion, if we don't start in lament, we're never going to be able to move successfully in any direction. Agreed. So, uh, listen, our 30-minute episode has gone 40 minutes now, so <laughs> we gotta, we got to bail. Um, but, uh, you know, we're going to continue this conversation. We have a whole season to get into these issues. Um so if you're, uh, you know, if you're, we're three episodes in, I think it is. Um, if you're angry with us now, um, just wait. You're going to get even more angry later. Uh, just hang in there with us. And, love us because we love you. Yeah. And keep in mind, too, that, you know, Marcus and I are first and foremost brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. And what you're going to see in this season, which you kind of got a taste of a little bit today, mm-hmm. is that we disagree when it comes to this issue, there are some things that we, we actually have, I think have some, I think it's safe to say have some profound disagreement, <laughs> but at the end of the day, we're brothers and sisters in Christ first. And this cut harkens back to something that's been going on that we mentioned in the first episode that we, we can't be kicking folks out of the kingdom mm. so quickly. Right. Who do they say Jesus is? Who, you know, are, do they believe in Christ through faith alone, by grace alone? You know, let's start there uh, before we, you know, before we have these hyper reactions to whether someone's siding with white evangelicalism or critical race theory and, yeah. or the, mar- you know, or, or, you know, or Marxist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, uh, we're family. We're in the, and we didn't make ourselves family, just like you weren't born of the family you wanted to by choice. We weren't born into this spiritual family. One, we weren't born in by choice. We're Calvinists. We weren't born in by choice. Amen. And we don't pick and choose who's in the family with us. And we don't get to then kick each other out. And, and you know, I, I am saddened we're recording this in the middle of October. There have been a whole lot of, you know, if your pastor's doing this, you need to bring up Matthew 18 and... The word excommunication is getting thrown around a lot right now. And uh, man, we're family, folks. we got to start there. Because if we don't start there, like we're definitely not going to be able to get to lament. We can't even agree that we're in the same family with one another. Right. And that right there, if you all want something to lament, let's start there. And then we can keep moving to, to lamenting racism and what's happened in this country. So Amen. Uh, I'll get off my soapbox now. Thank you so much for being with us. Lisa, thank you again for a wonderful and enlightening conversation. Right, and uh, we will see you all on our next episode of Family Discussion. Bye now. Well, thank you again for joining us for this week's Family Discussion. If you'd like to learn more or catch up on episodes you missed, head on over to our home at reformedmargins.com. There you'll find great content about a whole host of issues that we pray will bless your relationship with Jesus, including articles written by Lisa Spencer and me, Marcos Ortega. 
Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Your hosts are Marcos Ortega and Lisa Spencer. Our producer is Larry Lynn. Family Discussion is hosted by Podbean and recorded with Audacity. If you like what you heard today, it would be a great help to us if you gave a quick review and rating on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your favorite content so that you don't miss our next family discussion.